After a long period of working from home, hybrid work has now become a reality for many offices and teams across the world. It can be exciting to finally see friends and colleagues in person again, and to be able to connect face-to-face in the little moments throughout the day. But with this transition comes new stressors and challenges too, like training in our new morning routines for our old commutes and retaining flexibility while maintaining productivity. So how do we preserve the best of working from home and make the most of this return to office? And how do we know if we're getting it right? This is what we're talking about in our latest episode of the Resilience at Google podcast. I'm Kendall Kazor, part of Google's people development team and today's host of the Resilience at Google podcast. Today, we're talking with Dr. Nicholas Bloom, a professor of economics at Stanford University and leading expert on work from home and hybrid work. I think we're still gonna be working hybrid two years from now. Work from home is actually getting better because the technology is improving. Google is making better hardware, software, many firms are. So it's ever growing, but it's also gonna give us great resilience. And we also have Dr. Adam O'Neill, a clinical and performance psychologist, as well as a mindset coach, working with athletes and other high performers. What we're trying to do is create these boundaries, create the structure for you to show empathy to yourself first, and then you can extend that to other people. What you might find is that you can actually be present for them a little bit more frequently. And that's really what resiliency is based on. It's based on relationships. They're here to tell us about how we can meet this current moment of the transition back to the office place and how we can stay flexible for the future of work. This is our next episode, Adapting to Hybrid Work. So Nick, you've been studying work for home trends for over 20 years. What initially drew you to this line of research? And what interested you in this topic years before it became this phenomenon because of the pandemic? I've long been interested in management practices. Almost 20 years ago, I worked at McKinsey. And so along with collecting data on management practices, I started to collect data on what I call being nice to people practices, you know, maternity leave, paternity leave, job sharing, part-time and work from home. And it kind of ticked along until I basically had a piece of good luck. One of my students at Stanford was someone called James Liang, who turned out to be the co-founding CEO and currently chairman of Trip.com, which is one of the three big global travel agents. And when he was in class, he was interested in extending work from home in his company out in Shanghai. And so in the end, we did a massive randomized control trial. It was a big scientific experiment, and that kind of led to a lot of policy work. I have to say, no one cared that much about it until March 2020, at which point the world just went crazy for work from home. Yeah. And Adam, you're a clinical and performance psychologist. What does this mean in practice? And what types of people and teams do you work with? I think that the job that I get to do every day carries a lot of responsibility, but it's also really, really fun. 
on the performance side of things, I work a lot with individual athletes, singers, dancers, screenwriters, things of that nature. And then also just people in the tech industry too, you know, just folks who are in a performance situation in life and they're trying to figure out the best ways that they can sustain performance, cope with stress, enhance their rest and recovery, really just feel like they can be themselves regardless of the situation that they're in. We're all experiencing hybrid work in different ways. And I'm looking forward to continuing along that thread in this conversation. But first, I want to return to the research and data surrounding hybrid work. And Nick, we know that this isn't exactly a new concept. Even before the pandemic, we balanced work from home and dispersed teams, especially at global companies like Google. But it's at a whole new level now. How are people viewing hybrid work now? And what has changed over the past two years? Well, certainly hybrid is here to stay. I mean, you're right. A few of us worked hybrid before, but it was pretty rare. There was a clear stigma about working from home. Used to be joked about shirking from home or working remotely, remotely working. That's all gone. And in fact, if anything, it's the reverse. So I've been surveying 5,000 Americans a month. If you look around now, basically professionals, managers, high performers, high paid folks tend to be more likely to work from home. So it's now a positive association. Everyone knows it. It's, it's very standard in our lives. So it sounds like people are more receptive to work from home in this hybrid workspace. But I'm curious at a high level, what obstacles and challenges are teams facing as we transition to this new normal? I mean, there, there are two barriers. There's errant managers. I talk to a lot of organizations where a somewhat older male manager will say like, you know, I don't think work from home works. I want you guys back in the office five days a week. They're very extreme. They're very binary. And it's like, no, actually, you can be hybrid two, three days a week. So I think trying to show the data that employees are happier, people are more productive. The bigger fear is what I'll call disorganized hybrid. So drifting into this, we slowly return to the office. We come back from zero, one, two, three days a week. No one really gets a grip on it. No one says, look, the main reason we come in is to be together. And so Kendall comes in Monday, Tuesday, Adams, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, on Friday, Saturday. And like, we're never there together. We're all really frustrated and think this is terrible. I talk to a lot of companies that are upset that their employees aren't coming in enough. And I think the issue is they probably set too many days or unrealistic goals to come in. I mean, if you're having to force somebody to do something, that's probably not in their best interest. So I think that's the other critical thing is being intentional and organized. And I think a lot of the tools that Google and other firms actually provide is pretty critical to that organizing things being deliberate. For a lot of the teams that I'm working with now who are accelerating change and creating new habits, they've got a few things that they've got going on for them. One is that managers and leaders and captains of teams, they're very, very intentional with what they're doing. So they enter into even the briefest of conversations with a sense of presence. They don't carry their phone with them. They're not multitasking at the same time. They're actually listening carefully. They're demonstrating empathy as cheesy or as soft as that might sound. And there's wonderful research on this. We can point to so much research on empathy and compassion being so important to just interpersonal success, couples, relationships, things like that but also in team environments, especially high-pressured environments too. I think uh, another thing that these managers are doing is they're naming the barriers. They're not trying to avoid them or suppress them or pretend they're not there. They're also not trying to solve all the problems. They're just naming how hard it is. 
And that makes you human. Adam, you emphasize in your work the values of leaders maintaining empathy and compassion during times of transition. What does this look like in practice? Yeah, I think it starts with you. When we talk about empathy, really empathy is about yourself. It's what's happening inside your skin. Starting from a place of empathy, we can train compassion. You almost have to do the work yourself before you can extend it to other people, right? So you could do this, let's say if you drive to work and you find yourself in a parking lot, before just rushing out to the office building or wherever it is that you work, just sit in the silence there just for a minute. Ask yourself three questions, okay? What am I carrying with me? Not what's on your to-do list. I'm talking about like what's on your heart, right? So let's say you had a really kind of tough morning getting the kids ready for summer camp or school or something. If you're carrying that with you, just acknowledge it. You don't have to drop it yet. Another thing you could ask yourself then is what am I willing to let go of today? And what you're doing is you're creating this mental okayness, this approval to have a little bit of error in your life. And then the last question is, am I ready? Am I ready to go to make the transition to the workplace environment? And if the answer is no, just stay just a few more seconds, you know, and ask yourself again, am I ready? And so that way, when you walk into this new space, when you make that transition, you've really connected with yourself as far as what your preferences are, what your needs are. It starts there, create the structure for you to show empathy to yourself first. And then you'll have a little bit more flexibility so that you can extend that to other people. What you might find is that you can get out of your own way. You can actually be present for them a little bit more frequently. And that's really what resiliency is based on. It's based on relationships. Yes, yes, yes. Relationships are key and so important to how we navigate challenges ahead of us. And we know that community and connection helps us remain resilient through these times of change. And if you want to learn more about connection, go back to season one where we talked to Vanessa Druskett, who's a social psychologist who studies and researches connection. But Nick, you study how teams maintain connection best in hybrid work. So any suggestions here? Sure. So it kind of seems obvious the reason people want to go into the office is to work with colleagues. So we've surveyed, what, 20,000 people and numbers one and two will work with colleagues and socialize with colleagues. You know, free bagels ping pong table. But basically, employees come in to see their coworkers. It's overwhelmingly clear. And I think it's the same for all of us. There's a trade-off here. Employees want choice over where they live, over which days they come in. On the other hand, there's some clear benefits of being face-to-face. And it doesn't really make sense to have a team of 10 people where five say, I'm going to be fully remote. I'm moving to Alaska or wherever it is. I'm never going to come in again. And the other five that come in two, three days a week, that's very hard to maintain. Partly because the folks coming in eventually say, why am I coming in to video call you? I'm in the office, but I'm video calling. This is the whole choice versus coordination. I generally think it makes sense to have anchor days. We know most people don't want to w- come in the office Monday, Friday. So you're looking at Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You may as a team or an org or a group get together and say, look, why don't we all come in Tuesdays and Thursdays? That way, we're only coming two days a week, but when we're in, everyone's in, we get to work together. The whole plan for hybrid is when you're in, you have together things. So you think, look, what did I used to do throughout the week? And let's put all of those tasks into two buckets. One bucket of tasks is stuff that's best done together. Think of mentoring, training, presentations, lunches, problem solving. That stuff we're going to try and do on the days we're in the office. 
Then other things like reading, writing, doing data work, coding is probably best done in a quiet environment. You might as well do that at home. Let's do that on the home days. So that's what I'll call organized hybrid. That's one model that works pretty well. Some tasks are more efficient in office and some are more suited for working at home. But also we need to honor that varies person to person. And something we really want to respect at Google is the individual needs and desires of our employees. And flexibility is something that's really tricky to get right. We want to be flexible to protect this balance that everyone needs of working from home and protecting their well-being and also connecting an office. Adam, I'm curious from your perspective, why is it important for leaders and employees to consider the boundaries of others as well as themselves when designing this hybrid workflow? Setting boundaries for yourself, whether that's time boundaries or interpersonal boundaries, what we're doing there is we're really leveraging good biology. Let's like fast forward to like the worst case scenario. If you had zero work boundaries and you were asked to work 24 hours a day, how many days do you think you could work? How long do you think that lifestyle would last from a performance standpoint where you really have to be on? Not that long. You need time for rest and recovery. And what's kind of interesting here is like the athletes with whom I work, where their body is their currency, they know this very well. Those in the fields where your mind is the currency, there's not a whole lot of like love given towards recovery and rest. It's almost as if like you just believe that you can just go 24 hours a day. But what we know about good biology is that the brain has its own little gas tank. There are a certain amount of neurotransmitters that we can create at any one given point in time. Those become very empty. Like that's a really awesome recipe to burn out. I'm really, really concerned with the population at large who are having to go through the hybrid kind of transition with regard to setting personal boundaries, but then honoring those boundaries that they set for themselves. How would you honor the boundary of time and space and relationships too? You know, um, we're humans. <laughs> My family, we, we're taking phone calls in the middle of dinner time from our employers and people that we work with and clients and things like that, that's not honoring a personal boundary. So there's a tipping point too, as far as what are you willing to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis in order for your mind to be ready to do the work that you're doing. And if you're not really able to find the time to prepare, to become ready, then to ask you to be resilient under stress is a big ask, I think. Absolutely. What are the principles leaders need to take into consideration? when they plan this hybrid strategy, plan those days they want to come together to collaborate, but then also honor the, the individuality of how people work best and just the individual circumstances that might come up. Nick, I'm curious your thoughts on that, just to honor that human side, but then also, you know, to encourage people to come together, which is difficult sometimes. I think the first step is being deliberate about how many days people need to come in and having that link to what tasks need to be done in person. And for some teams, it may be one day a week. The other extreme, look, if you work in McDonald's and you're serving hamburgers, that's five days a week. You can't really do that remotely. If you're doing high-end coding and maybe you're giving modules, maybe that's you know one day a week. Teaching is definitely better in person. Research seminars are better in person. Most other activities can be done remotely. So the first thing is figure out which days make sense and then how many days make sense and then just anchor around them. There's a huge benefit if you set that up 
that the home days, you do get much more flexibility. So imagine as Kendall, you're, you're Adam and my boss. We come into work Tuesday, Thursday, let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're doing kind of quiet work, coding, writing, data stuff. If you manage us well, which is you set us objectives and say, as long as you get your objective done, I'm fine with it. Those Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're doing individual work. We don't need to reply to your text or emails or whatever, Slack or IMs instantly. We can therefore do things like go to the dentist if we need to, go pick our kids up from school, go for a run. So the flexibility comes from it. And I think well-organized hybrid generates that because what it sets up is two days or three days you're in the office whereby you're like really busy. It's like socially exhausting. But then the other days you're at home, you're doing individual tasks and that gives you a bit of latitude. I like this sense of balance and also acknowledging that all the interaction back to back, I don't know about you, but definitely drains my energy as an introvert. And the added flexibility of working from home has huge benefits for people's well-being. We've heard from Googlers that it's led to this resurgence of investing in themselves and honoring what's best for them and how they work to be at their best. But Googlers have also wondered and come to us asking, how can I maintain this flexibility when we're transitioning to this hybrid model? So Nick, I'm curious if you have any advice on managing that in this new normal. So during the pandemic, to put some numbers here, the average American saved about an hour a day from less commute. They saved about another 10 minutes a day from less time getting ready. For a typical American, they're getting two to three hours a week extra leisure, which allows you to you know, go for a walk each day or go golf. We've just avoided commute, which psychologists, there's various surveys show it's the most unpleasant part of our day. So we've got rid of the worst part of the day and just handed that back. Partly is more work, which is why employers like this, and partly is more leisure time. I think there is some risk of work-life boundaries being eroded. Interestingly enough, when we asked people why they wanted to go into the office, numbers one and two, the biggest reasons for socializing work with colleagues. Number three was maintain work-life boundaries. And we kind of see it in the data. You look at the times that messages and emails and IMs, for example, in the evenings and over lunch, there's a big pickup in activity and over weekends. So it's clear that work from home pushes activity out. It's less obvious it's bad, by the way, just to be clear. If what's happening is, say, Adam goes to the dentist, we pick up our kids or something weekdays, and we decide, look, we've basically done this stuff in the week. We've got a couple of hours of work left over. We're going to do it on the weekends. I think that's fine. On the other hand, if it's due to a feeling of stress that you're being dumped on with too much work, then that's bad. If we go back to a hybrid model whereby you're only going into the office two days a week, and those office days are social, and the home days are individual tasks, we still should be able to relax and you know, take time out in the other three days, right? Because if the idea is not that if you're managing Adam and I, you're keeping tabs on us, expecting us to respond instantly. Instead, you're saying like, Nick, you got to write this you know, marketing brief, Adam, you got to you know, do this chunk of code, just get it to me by the end of the week. We can then flex around it. And that's kind of treating employees with flexibility. And what I'm hearing you say is that with this extra flexibility, We need to be conscious that we aren't letting our work bleed into our home life and into the extra hours we've gotten back. And actually, our People Innovation Lab, our PyLab, has studied this very concept and has found that Googlers with high rates of work-life segmentation, the ability to segment their work life and their home life, to detach from work when they choose to, have high rates of innovation, higher rates of productivity and performance and have a greater satisfaction with their well-being. And it's a very critical skill, especially 
in this hybrid environment where we're switching our environments constantly. So I'm curious, like as we embrace that flexibility, it may require a shift in how we think about productivity and what is productive in the office versus at home. So Adam, how can leaders rethink performance and productivity? I think that leaders, especially those with decision-making capacity, they're in such an incredible position right now. This, This is an amazing opportunity, dare I say, like an unprecedented opportunity to really address the institutional changes that that could be taking place right now. What you're trying to do here is like create a culture where it's okay to be human first. It's okay to show empathy before execution. As far as listening, as soon as somebody does end up talking or sharing something, don't rush to the next point. Don't rush to the next person right away because you have a deadline. You're the one who opened up the conversation. So own it. Create space. When you create space for other people, you're inviting them to create space for themselves. That models for other people. Like it's okay to be human first. And what we find is when we're, people are motivated to do work, they do better work. I remember COVID starting and having to be overnight a first grade teacher and a third grade teacher through virtual learning. And this is the experience of my kids going through a hybrid environment. When I was at my best as a dad, I was connected with my needs and my preferences, and I was showing compassion to them because it's hard for them. When I was at my worst, I was not doing that. I was disconnected from myself and not really giving my kids a lot of space, let alone grace. So when it comes to being there for somebody in a loving way first, that's where the productivity started to pick up. So can we do the little tiny things interpersonally to create the conditions for people to feel energized and felt and heard and all the cheesy stuff, right? All the touchy-feely stuff. But that's what we're going through right now as a culture, this huge change. What's the purpose of like pushing and gripping on tight? We've done that enough. We don't need more of that. That is so powerful, Adam. And just acknowledging that we're all humans. We're all going through stressors. We're all going through challenges. And just to open it up with that sense of vulnerability and compassion. And what about on the ground in our offices? How can we make sure we're actually implementing this new sense of understanding of what productivity, high performance, and well-being looks like? I'm pretty sure Google does this all the time, but I advise firms, you've really got to anonymously survey employees in large numbers. I've used some of these surveys a bit before. They have these scales of how am I feeling pressure? How am I feeling mentally? How's my work-life balance doing? Do I have enough time? If you're Google to do it internally, compare different groups and managers. I talk to a big bank where they're collecting this data all the time. They have a quarterly employee survey and they look at it. They highlight managers that have very bad scores and follow up with them and say, look, your team appears to have pretty awful work-life balance scores. They're clocking long hours. Can we sit down and talk about this? You know, And it should be part of manager's performance reviews. It's part of a manager's role is not only to promote and develop people, but to keep them happy. It's not just output. It's about people development. Absolutely. And checking in on each other during this time of transition is so important. It's crucial as a leader to understand that how you experience this change will look and feel different than your team. Your challenges are different. Your obstacles are different. And you won't know how others are experiencing it unless you take the time to ask. And also, 
More importantly, listen and listen to learn and understand instead of listen to fix and give immediate advice and action. And as you both know, another complexity that arises with dispersed teams is about equity and representation and the unconscious biases that seep into those relationships. What are the unconscious biases that managers should be aware of in order to be intentional and inclusive in this hybrid mixed modal work environment? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing is just to be clear, there's very strong evidence for presenteeism bias. I mean, it's no for my own work. I ran a randomized control trial. We randomized volunteers in a big tech firm into those that work from home four days a week and those that came in full time. And they did that for nine months. And we saw 21 months later, these randomized work from home employees had almost 50% lower promotion rates. So this is enormous. Two things are going on. One is folks working from home are basically discriminated against. They're forgotten about and ignored. The other thing is you do need to come in to kind of develop managerial skills. You know, you were talking about having coffee. You know, some of the coffee time that seems like it's time wasted is actually building social capital, knowing what's going on, connecting with people. So I think the first thing to establish is there's very strong evidence for really large issues around presenteeism bias. And I think that's something that we have to be really, really careful of. And I think that's what happens in virtual environments. So you get a team of five people and they come into the office and they deal with their commute and they disrupt their system at home and they have to make concessions about walking the dog or picking up the kids or whatever. But then there's other people online, maybe even in the same zip code. How quickly we are to other them, to put them into an outsider group category, and then to look around the people in our own physical environment and to in-group them and to say, these are my my true people. These are the people on my team. Look at the sacrifices we're making. It does kind of drive this wedge in between who you are and who I am. And in fact, this links up to DEI. You see that certain groups, particularly minorities, people with young kids, tend to work from home more days. And it's really important to recognize this and make sure that they're not effectively discriminated against because they they don't come in as much. So I think my two pieces of advice on this, one is structural, one is behavioral. So on structural, I generally would try and avoid having teams whereby people are effectively going for similar promotions, where some people are coming in a lot of days and others aren't. The second is, I think, training and data helps. So there's a lot of training you can do to try and minimize this and just collecting detailed data and trying to look at promotion rates versus remote working. And that helps. If you can't fix the structure, that reduces the problem, but I don't think it ever eliminates it. And I think it's essential to be aware of it. It it is a genuine problem, and it's something that I think is going to come out over the next two, three years. Okay, so Nick, here's the big question we all want answers to. What is your prediction about the future of hybrid work? I think we're still going to be working hybrid two years from now. On resilience, you know, an interesting point, hybrid Work from home is actually getting better because the technology is improving. Google is making better hardware, software, many firms are. Uh, So it's ever growing, but it's also going to give us great resilience. I mean, you should be aware there may be another pandemic. Being able to kind of easily shift is actually a great upside. And I think it's good personally as well. You know, imagine you have a kid that's really sick, like Adam and a parent. You know, you you can imagine some personal tragedy. You've got to stay home. If you're working from home two days a week, three days a week, you can easily do that. This has been just such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate all your insights about how we can be the best in this transition. 
and also bringing it back down to human level of we're all experiencing this change. We're all have our own realities and just to be conscientious and compassionate about how others might be going through it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Kendall. Thanks very much, Adam. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience at Google. To stay up to date on Nick and Adam's latest research, go follow them on social media and visit the links in our show notes. Until our next episode, we hope that what you've just heard gives you the ideas and the tools to meet the moments that matter the most to you. This has been a production by Google's People Development Team. A special thank you to our People Innovation Lab, or PyLab, led by Iwa Shirako, for providing us with the data to inform this conversation. And we'd like to thank our partners over at Long Story Short Media, executive producers Jessica Stewart and Bob Yule, producers Emily Russell and Josh Hall, and editor Andy Strassel for producing this podcast recorded remotely on Google Meet. If you are interested in other conversations hosted by Google, check out our Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place and can be found wherever you find your favorite shows.